Good morning. Well, let's see. It is now five minutes to ten. If you and I were living in uh, Palestine in the first century, on that first, the original Easter day, our Lord would have been out in about uh, about three hours now. And uh, the rumors would be spreading everywhere. It was the Passover feast, the time of the Passover, as you know. And uh, pilgrims, Jews, proselytes to Judaism, gathered from all over the world to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem, from Europe, from Asia, from Mesopotamia, from North Africa. Scholars estimate there were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem at that time, camped out on the hillside, filling all of the inns, living in in and around uh, Jerusalem, and celebrating that uh, very special time for, uh, for the Jewish people. Many of you would have uh, would observe the crucifixion. Many of you would have heard him. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would have listened to his preaching. The rumor would have spread that he had been uh, charged with insurrection, uh, that he was guilty of treason. Many of you would have listened to the reports of the trial, his conviction, and uh, the fact that he was sentenced to death, and then you probably would have gone up to Golgotha to watch the crucifixion. Public crucifixions were usually uh, attended by large crowds in those days. It would, there would be no question in your mind that Jesus was dead. You saw him expire on the cross. You saw the spear that put an end, uh, that would have put an end to anyone's life if he were not already dead. All those things you, uh, you would have observed. But now rumors are spreading that Jesus is alive. Some women went to the tomb this morning, bearing spices to anoint his body, to further prepare the body, to basically to embalm it. In those days, they uh, used myrrh and spice, uh, resinous compounds. They were added to the the cloth uh, in which the body was encased, and after a bit that... uh, that case would become rigid like a, like a butterfly chrysalis, like a cocoon, and, and these women were going to prepare the body for burial or for death. You know, that's really the only thing you can do uh, for a dead body. You can't bring it back to life. You can just make it look a little bit, a little bit better. From the very beginning of history, we've been trying to stave off the effects of life, but nothing works very well. And and nothing works in the end. We all die. Sooner or later, the Grim Reaper comes for us. That's just one of those hard facts in life against which we keep running our our heads. We uh, spend a lot of money to stave off death. Think of all the uh, exercise clothes that we buy, the, the walking shoes, the memberships in health clubs, the special diets that we undertake. All the money that goes into the medical profession, the entire defense budget, all of that money, all of the time, all of the energy, all the effort that we spend is simply to keep death at a distance, but sooner or later it gets us all. And now these women are headed for the tomb. All they can do is anoint the body. That's all you can do for a dead body. And as they made their way to the tomb, they were wondering how they'd get inside. There was a heavy door that was padlocked. It was guarded by uh, the National Guard. 
and uh, they didn't know how they would be able to uh, view the body of Jesus. But there was an earthquake that morning, and when they arrived, the stone was rolled away, and they couldn't find Jesus. He wasn't there. The report was that they saw a couple of angels. The angels said, what are you doing here in a cemetery looking for a living person? Living people don't, don't spend a great deal of time in cemeteries. Don't look for him here among the dead. He's among the living. So these the women went back to the disciples and they told them what they had heard and what they had seen. And two of the disciples, Peter and John, ran to the tomb and uh, they viewed the grave clothes. What they saw was this, uh, were the grave clothes encased in resin and hardened in the shape of Jesus' body with a very small hole where his neck had been. And then about six inches away, the turban that was placed on their head, but the body was gone. They would have had to break those, literally break those grave clothes in order to steal the body. And there wasn't room to extract the body through the, through the hole or the neck that fit around the neck. And they were amazed and they believed. They believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then the rumors continued to spread that, that Mary Magdalene had seen Jesus, thought he was the gardener, had talked to him had recognized him after a while when he spoke to her. And other of the women had seen Jesus. And then Peter, who was an impeccable witness and who was a credible person, and they knew his character, he said that he had seen the Lord. And his rumors were spreading throughout the city, and no one knew what to, what to make of these uh, reports. And then something happened late in the afternoon of that first Easter day. Luke is the only one who reports this uh, event in, in detail. Mark alludes to it, but only, Lark, uh, only Luke gives us the details. It's found in uh, Luke 24, if you'd like to follow along with me. Luke, as you know, was, uh, was a physician, trained in the medical schools of that day. He was a Greek. He was not a Jew. He was not, uh, at least until he met the Lord, even interested in the Jewish faith, as far as we can, can tell. And uh, he was a man, because he was a physician and trained in Greek schools, he was a man trained in the scientific method. The scientific method didn't begin in the 20th century, it began with Aristotle. This man was a trained observer. And he wrote his history of the story of Jesus' life and, as you know, the book of Acts, which is the sequel to his gospel, which is the story of the expansion of the early church. Luke did what all good historians do. He simply interviewed eyewitnesses, people who had seen and heard the events that surrounded Jesus' life, his trial, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and he extracted from them the data that went into his history. It is very good history. The manuscripts are very old. There are a lot of them. They're closer to the events than, uh, oh, let's say, the history of uh, Caesar's conquest of Gaul. Excellent histories. But you say, dead carcasses don't rise from the dead. Well, that's not a historical observation. That's a philosophical observation. That's an assumption that, that we make because we haven't seen any dead carcasses rise. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. 
That doesn't do away with the validity of the history. And what, what Luke did is simply write what someone told him happened to him. And the person was a man by the name of Cleopas, who, according to church history, was Jesus' uncle. So uh, Jesus had grown up around this man. He'd seen him. He, you know, he, he didn't know him anywhere. Now let's read Luke's, uh, Luke's account, beginning with verse 13. Now that same day, two of them, that is, uh, two of those that had been gathered with the eleven... Uh, back in verse 9, there's a reference to those uh, that gathering. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We, we know the name of one of these uh, individuals. His name was Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. might have been Cleopas' wife, for that matter, or it might have been a friend. But uh, they were journeying from Jerusalem down to Emmaus, which, as Luke tells us, was a little village about seven miles to the west of Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one living in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? As Luke puts it in his history of the church, these things weren't done in a corner. The whole city of Jerusalem was buzzing with the reports that Jesus had risen from the dead. I have to chuckle when I read Jesus' question. What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who, who, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. There's a bit of unconscious irony in that statement, which Luke picked up, I believe. He saw the irony in it. They look full in Jesus' face, and they say there were some women who went to the tomb, but they didn't see Jesus as they looked straight into his face. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he would go further. But they urged him strongly, begged him literally, stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. That would be Peter. 
Then the two told him, uh, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. These two men uh, remained in Jerusalem throughout that Sunday, listening to the reports. Finally gave up uh, hope and started back home to the little village of, of Emmaus. And uh, as they journeyed down that, that hill, our Lord overtook them. He was coming from Jerusalem too. And he caught up with them and fell into step with them and began to listen in on their conversation. And they were talking about the things that had happened in Jerusalem that day. The events surrounding the crucifixion and, and the reports that he was, he was living. And the Lord said, what, what are you talking about? They said, are you the only person in Jerusalem who didn't know about these things? Jesus says, what things? Tell me, what, 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 what things are you talking about? And uh, they began to tell him about Jesus. They said, well, he was, he, was a, he was a good man. He was a prophet. Now, being Jews, they understood that a prophet was someone who received direct revelation from God and then announced that truth to others and who predicted the future with 100% accuracy. They knew the credentials of a prophet. They said he's mighty in word. He was a great preacher. And mighty indeed, we saw him raise uh, the dead and, and give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the dumb and the lame began to leap and walk. We saw those things and we had hoped that he would be the Messiah. He'd be the one to redeem Israel. But they killed him. And now it's been three days and everyone knows that after three days decay sets in and it's all over for us. And they just stood there and looked sad. They had no hope. And Jesus said to them, Oh, you, you poor, untutored, ignorant men. He doesn't call them fools. Some of the translations make it appear as though our Lord rebuked them. It's really a gentle reproof. You poor, ignorant men. So slow to believe what the scriptures say about the Messiah. And then he took their scriptures and from memory he began to teach them everything in the Old Testament about himself. Because you see... As Edith Schaefer puts it, Christianity is Jewish. You find the roots of Christianity in the Old Testament, in their scriptures. When the apostles talk about the scriptures, they're not so much talking about their writings as they are their scriptures, which were the Old Testament, which tell us all about Jesus. That's what they're there for. He's the inescapable conclusion as, as you read through the Old Testament. Oh, I wish I could have been there that day and hear our Lord expound on the Old Testament as he began, as Luke tells us, with Moses. That is, he, he went through the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and, and he talked about himself in those five books. And uh, then he went to the prophets, which in the Jewish Bible begins with Joshua, the former prophets, and then the latter prophets. And he talked about himself in those books. And then he went on to the Psalms. And he went all the way through the Bible, in their Bible, from Genesis all the way to Chronicles. Chronicles is the last book in the Jewish scriptures. And he talked about himself. 
Started with the story of the fall, pointed out that after man fell, plunged the race into sin and death, God promised Eve that uh, one of these days, one of her descendants would trample the serpent underfoot and set everything right. And now that promise was confirmed to Shem. And then was confirmed to Abraham, one of his descendants, would be the child who would set things right again. And then that promise was confirmed to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Judah, who was the head of the kingly line, and then to David. David wanted to do something for God. For God. He said, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, you don't have to do anything for me. I want to do something for you. I want to build you a house. And this wonderful play on words, he promises to David that he would give him a dynasty and one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. Our Lord must have gone through that passage of scripture and explained who that descendant was and then he turned to the psalms and talked about psalm 22 and that wonderful graphic picture of the crucifixion a thousand years before it happened and the words that our lord echoes from the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me taken right out of that that psalm and then psalm 16 which promised that God's Holy One would never see corruption. His body would never decay. Which they never understood in its setting in the Old Testament, but which later the apostles explained clearly refers to our Lord Jesus. And David, uh, our Lord must have just tracked through all of those, all of that poetic literature, and then finally on to the book of Chronicles, which promised... Israel, that they would have a king like David, but an even greater king than, than David. And the two men reported, to, uh, said to one another, after, in, in reflecting back on our Lord's explanation of the Old Testament, that their hearts burned. There was a, a, sort of a sympathetic vibration that was set up in their hearts, and they realized it's true. Why have we never seen this before? Why have we never seen that Isaiah... 600 years before Christ came, predicted that he would be the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. He would be the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. And why didn't we ever see that Isaiah predicted the resurrection when he said, if he makes his soul an offering for sin, he will see his offspring, he will see the light of life. We didn't see that until he pointed it out to us. And then they got to their little village of Emmaus, and our Lord made as though he was going to keep walking. He just kept walking right on by their little house, and uh, they begged him to come in. Because you see, the Lord will not barge into, into anyone's house. He makes himself available to us. He walks with us. He talks to us. He teaches us. His Holy Spirit elaborates on the truth for us, but he will not barge into our life. He will not intrude unless we ask him. And so they begged him to come in. Please come in, have dinner with us. It's late. You shouldn't be on the road at night. It's dangerous to be there. And I'm sure all of this was amusing to our Lord. We would have no problems with bandits or with the nighttime. But he came in and, and he sat down with them and, and they prepared a meal and for some reason he played the part of the host. It was the host who broke the bread and, and prayed and whether he asked or whether they asked him, I, I don't know, but he took the bread in his hands and suddenly they realized who he was. Now I don't know how they 
how they saw who he was. Perhaps when he reached out to pick up the bread, they saw the prints of the nails in his wrist. Or it may just be that our Lord had a characteristic way of picking up the bread. They had probably seen him feed the 5,000 and the 4,000, and they must have been around him when he had done that before. Or he had a characteristic way of blessing it. His prayers uh, were memorable. I don't know why they saw him at that at that moment, but they saw him, and they realized that it was the risen Lord, and he vanished from their sight. Which tells me that he didn't leave, he simply disappeared. He was still there. See, all of these appearances where the Lord he appeared here, and he appeared there, and he appeared over here, but... That doesn't mean he was localized in time or, or in space. And it, When the ascension occurred, he didn't simply go off into heaven and leave us behind. He's still here. He's still the risen Lord. He's still walking and talking and manifesting himself to people all over the world. Well, the, the disciples went on back to uh, Jerusalem. They left their meal uneaten and started uh, back up the hill toward the city. And uh, when they got there, they found the eleven, that is, the apostles, less Judas. And they had assembled together saying, it's true. It's true. It has actually happened. (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't believe the women. But Peter had seen him. And... uh, for all the wrong reasons, they probably trusted Peter rather than the women. And then the two told him what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. That was his characteristic greeting. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and ate it in their their presence. In other words, he was for real. This was not a vision. This was not an apparition. He wasn't a spook. He wasn't a spirit. He was for real. He had really risen from the dead. And he ate, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, to show them that that he was for real. That uh, eating with them is something that's stuck in their minds to the very end of their days. They they, uh, report on that over and over again. They, they comment on the fact that they touched him. John says our hands handled him and we touched him. The word of life, we know he was real. And Thomas touched him. And, but the thing that really stuck in their mind was the fact that he ate and drank with them. In fact, Peter tries to work that into his sermon whenever he can. When he talked to, to uh, Cornelius and his family in Caesarea, he said, I just want you to understand that when the risen Lord appeared, we ate and drank with him. He couldn't get away from the fact that that he was real. It had really happened. 
Now, there are a lot of good reasons to believe in the resurrection from our vantage point in history. As I said before, it's very good history. The passage that Jerry read to us this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul points out that there are a number of people that saw him, and that 500 saw him at one time, and uh, most of them were still alive. Now, uh, scholars agree that, that 1 Corinthians was written about 57 A.D., even the most radical scholars who would not believe in the resurrection agree this book was written 57 A.D. There simply can be no other options for that book. Twenty-five years after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul said, I can give you the names and addresses and phone numbers of a number of people that saw the resurrected Jesus. He appeared to them. You could call them and check it out. Now, let me ask you, what chances would the church have of, of, convincing people that Jesus rose from the dead if he hadn't actually risen from the dead. All you have to do is go back and check with the witnesses. Did he or did he not? So it's very good historical evidence. There's the evidence of the open tomb. I mean, how do you explain that open sepulcher? Some say, well, the, the officials stole the body, and that was the first claim that was made. But... Uh, if that were true, and Christians started saying Jesus rose from the dead, all the officials had to do was produce the body to put that rumor to death. And others say, well, no, the disciples stole the body, and they, they started this rumor that Jesus rose from the dead. I ask you, why? Why would they do that? With these, you know, the next few generations, uh, in fact, for the next 300 years until the time of Constantine, the church suffered terribly because of their belief in the resurrection. Why would they persist in believing something that they know is not true when, when to insist upon it meant that, that they were led to their death? It doesn't make any sense at all. How do you explain the early church? The church began. We know there, there are records of a church in existence in the middle of the first century. How do you explain that? How do you explain the, the change from the Sabbath observance of Jews to worshiping on Sunday? Something had to happen to, to cause them to overthrow hundreds of years of tradition and practice and start worshiping on Sunday morning. And the evidence is all very, very early. We're not talking about a legend that grew up over a long period of time. The manuscripts go back to the first decade of the first century. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is not a legend. This is a lie. It's a preposterous lie. The, new, the, the writers of the New Testament have foisted on us a, a gigantic fraud. And I say, why? Why would they do that when it cost them so much? No, he really did rise from the dead. But let me tell you something. I don't think anyone is convinced by the rational proofs that Jesus rose from the dead. They are singularly unimpressive to me for some reason or the other. Calvin said that these, uh, these proofs, these rational proofs, are what he called secondary aids to our imbecility. They don't help us much. Oh, they buttress the faith of Christians. But I personally don't know anyone who came to know Christ because they convinced themselves rationally, apologetically, that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe a few, but I... I Personally, I've not met too many. I'll, I'll tell you how you get to know Jesus. You get to know him the way you get to know everybody else. You know, it, it just stands to reason that if he's alive, if this is real, if he is invisible, 
but still here. That he would make himself known to anyone who wanted to know him. But you see, the problem is we believe what we want to believe. The historical evidence is excellent. It's better than the evidence for any other event that took place in, in, in antiquity. It's better than, uh, than uh, the battle of, for the evidence for the Battle of Bighorn. We have more documents closer to the facts. We have credible witnesses. The evidence is extremely good. Even historians must admit that. But it's not convincing to someone who doesn't want to be convinced. We only believe what we want to believe. I heard a story once about a man who went into a psychiatrist and told him he was dead. The psychiatrist, how can I convince this man that he's not dead, he's alive? So he, he, said, he asked him a question. He said, do dead men bleed? And he said, no, of course not. So the man had his hand out on the table, so the psychiatrist took his letter opener and out and jabbed him in the back of the hand and started to bleed a little bit. Looked at his hand and he says, by golly, dead men do bleed after all. <laughs> We believe what we want to believe. Let me read something that Jesus said. This is back in the 14th chapter of John. He said this before his death and his resurrection when he had the disciples gathered in the upper room. And this is the way he put it. I want you to listen carefully to these words because if you want to know Jesus, this is how you know him. If you want to come to believe in the resurrection, this is how you come to have that faith. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I ask you to do. Now, he's not saying we have to be perfect. He's not saying there's some code of ethics that Christians have to do in order to be accepted by God. He's simply saying that coming to Christ means a willingness to do his will. He put it another way in John 7. He said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know of the teaching. In other words, am I, am I for real or am I a fraud? A lot of people don't. See, they'd, they'd rather go it alone. They believe in themselves, and I suspect most of us do until we come up against something that we can't handle. We don't have what it takes. But Jesus said if, if we want him, if we want God, if we love him, if we're willing to seek his will, then he'll do something for us. I will ask the Father, Jesus said, and he'll give you another comforter to be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth, that's the Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. I'm a Trinitarian. I believe in God in three persons. But let's remember that there is still only one God. The Holy Spirit is Jesus. I will give you another comforter to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he lives with you. He's talking about himself. I'm with you. And will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. Listen to this. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him. 
and I'll show myself to him. Do you want to see Jesus? Oh, not with the eyes, the external eyes, but with the eyes of the heart. Do you want to know that he's real? Do you want to know that he did indeed rise from the dead? Then you have to do what these men did on, on the way down to Emmaus. You know, our Lord is walking along with you. He's walking with you. He's running with you if you're in the fast lane. He's keeping up with you. He's overtaken you. And he's walking along by your side. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows all the aspirations and longing and desires and hurts and hungers of, of your heart. He knows everything that's going on. And uh, what he wants to do is manifest himself to you. May I encourage you to do what Jesus did for these these men begin to read the scriptures to see Jesus. And our Lord, who is the Holy Spirit, will explain them to you. And you'll see right through those pages into the face of the Lord, you'll come to see him. You'll know him. I can't tell you how you'll know. You'll just, you'll just know. Because, as Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me will be loved by my Father. And I'll love him and manifest myself to him. Let me share one other passage with you. It's in the window of this. I'm, I'm done. It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll go in and eat with him. And he with me. And I can't help but wonder if John isn't really thinking back to those wonderful occasions when Jesus ate and, and drank with them. You're like those two people on their way to a mess and they come to their home and they... They open the door and they say, Lord Jesus, come in. Although they didn't know at the time who he was, they were confused. And they invite him in and he comes in and he will make himself real to you. And he'll do the same for you. So I encourage you to read the word of God. Look through those pages that our Lord Jesus and, and let the Lord explain himself to you and make himself more and more real to you. And then you'll have an opportunity to invite him into your life and he'll come in and he'll eat and he'll drink with you and there will be no doubt in your mind that he's alive. Remember the song we sang just before I got up here to talk? You asked me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. He says too subjective. Now, now there's something more than subjectivity going on here. There is the living Lord who will make himself real to you. Some of you have seen that picture, I don't know the artist, a picture of Jesus standing at the door of a house and knocking. And uh, someone observed a long time ago that there's no knob on the door and pointed that out to the artist. You left the knob off the door. And he says, no, no, I didn't. The knob's on the inside. You see, the Lord will not barge into your life, but he'll knock. If you hear his voice and you open the door, he'll come in. And he'll make himself real to you. Let's pray. Will you stand, please, with me?
For those of you that have an Easter faith, for those who believe that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, this is such a comforting passage because it reminds us again that that our Lord walks with us and he talks with us along life's narrow way. That this is not a figure of speech, it's not a, a metaphor, it's, it's real, it's true. He's just as real as he was in the days of his, uh, of his flesh. Invisible, hidden, unseen, but seen by the eyes of faith. The one who accompanies us everywhere we go, he will never leave us or forsake us. That's what gives us hope. When death comes, we just simply, he takes our hand and we simply step into another level of relationship with him and live with him eternally. And for those of you who have not yet invited Christ into your house, what a, what a wonderful time to do it on Easter morning when we celebrate this occasion. We look back 2,000 years ago to an event that really took place. We celebrate it today. What a wonderful time to just invite Christ to be the Lord of your life, to make himself increasingly real to you. He said he will manifest himself to you. The burden of proof is on him. You don't have to find him. He will reveal himself to you. And all you have to do is reach down to that knob. It's on the inside of the door. He's not going to force his way in. All you have to do is open that door and invite him to come in. And he said he'll come in. He's not a liar. You don't have to sweep out the house and hang up the clothes and clean everything up. You don't have to make the house more presentable. Just ask him to come in, as you are. Will you pray with me, Lord Jesus? Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for going through hell for me, taking the place that I should have occupied. I'm confused. I'm uncertain about the facts, but I, I believe you can do something for me that no one else can do. Will you please come into my house and make yourself real to me? Thank you for coming in. We are so grateful, Lord, that you have given us these um, wonderful treasures, these eyewitness reports of people who actually saw him that, that are confirming to our faith and give us pictures of what it's like to walk and talk with you and experience the kind of fellowship that you've intended for us from eternity. And we look forward to having that relationship with you forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.